We have returned with another edition of the nation's college basketball show and podcast. It is college basketball coast to coast. I am the somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. We are back for another edition. Thank you for finding us. However, you've done so through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, any of our other places where you might find it through TuneIn, etc., social media link. We are here heading all the way to the greatest month of the year, the month of March, and into the NCAA tournament in the Final Four in Houston. Love the diversity of the guests, the voices, the insight, and we've got much to get to. And why do we I, – I don't even want to delay. I want to get right in here with one of the guys that I enjoy, the coach, Mark Wise. <laughs> uh, love his insight on everything SEC. At the time that you and I are recording, you are getting ready to work South Carolina, Mississippi State on the SEC network. Again, that is for Tuesday night. You may be hearing us later in the week. There's SEC action on Wednesday. We're going to touch on a bunch with Mark Wise here. Uh, I love uh, his insight on all the ESPN platforms on all of college basketball that he covers, but in specific, the SEC. Much to get to. Coach, uh, you and I have not done this officially on the record on a show in 2023. Here we are, and we're marching <laughs> towards Selection Sunday. I got to have my man Mark Wise on the show. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you, TJ. Yeah, I mean, um, um, football is finally winding down, and it winds down about mid at the midpoint of most conferences in terms of their number of league games played and the sec is no different because this is um, this window that meaning Tuesday and Wednesday will mark the ninth game for everybody. So um, the back nine, if you will, should be outstanding. Yeah. So we've got much to cover with you. I want to kind of go chronologically and, uh, and get it covered and get it done. Uh, get out and run and gun on the break. The coach was always big on, you know, get me the ball, get me the ball. Give me the I'm offense. Filling, give me give the, me the, the I'm filling the lane. I'm on a wing. I'm filling the lane. I'm just going to set him up here. Okay. Uh, first and foremost, I have not gotten your takes at least on the air, like what we're doing here in podcast form on Billy Packer, the impact of this man yeah. who passed away at 82 years of age. I have said a bunch on a bunch of different places. What, what should we remember? What is the significance of Billy Packer, his involvement with the game, broadcasting the Final Four for NBC and CBS 34 consecutive years? Right. Astounding. What, what do you want to say? What should we remember about him and his impact? Well, um, on Saturday, I had Vanderbilt at Texas A&M, and I'm talking to Jerry Stackhouse at the shoot-around, and I asked him, I said, well, what are your memories of, of Billy Packer? And uh, he he said some things, but the the point being, Billy Packer really connected two generations to college basketball. My generation, your generation, or maybe you're a little too young for that. But anyway, (laughs) um, my generation for sure. And then the Jerry Stackhouse generation, Mm -hmm. which is probably closer to yours. So uh, from that standpoint, when you do 34 years of Final Four coverage, um, at that special, a lot of people don't remember that in the old days, there was only one game a week, and it was NBC, it was Dick Emberg, Billy Packer, Al McGuire. And in another lifetime ago, uh, we were fortunate enough to have one of those games at Purdue, but you need to remember that league play took precedent back then. So we, we played a Thursday-Saturday league schedule, and on Sunday played Syracuse. Uh, Louis Orr and that group. And and here is uh, in Mackey Arena is Dick Emberg and, and Billy Packer and Al McGuire. We got beat in the game. 
Um, but it was great to have them there. And, and I've, I've often said, I think the two most important people in the progress of college basketball and television were Billy Packer and Dick Vitale. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt, uh, different styles. And, right. uh, but I mean, in terms of championing the sport and the development of the sport and the sport becoming, uh, just what it has become on TV. Uh, and, and I want you to bring a, a little more insight into Billy was not just involved as a broadcaster, as the analyst, yeah. but in a lot of ways, he was the broker from a business standpoint on Correct. making those matchups happen. Elaborate on that again for the audience here. Well, again, again, I think he proved his worth early on. And when the CBS people got involved, he was very involved in terms of what games that they then started broadcasting. And he, he had a, you know, the thing that I like about Billy is it, 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 people don't know he was a great player. You know, he played at Wake Forest. He was in a Final Four. Um, so he gave you that perspective, but he also coached a little bit. Now, stop and think about this. How many analysts today can give you both a coach's and player's perspective in the same broadcast? Mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, he was unique, unique as a broadcaster, unique as a broker, if you will, uh, in, in terms of uh, championing the sport, getting more television exposure. And, you know, guys like me uh, today uh, can thank Billy Packer and Dick Vitale. Uh, it's interesting that Tim Brando on another podcast that I was doing would say, hey, Packer had the relationships, especially with the ACC coaches, where he could go to a lefty Drizelle and say, right. we're trying to put together a Maryland-UCLA game. Can you can you host this game? And here's the budget. Packer was that involved. And that's how that right. game would end up on NBC or maybe even on CBS in, in the early 80s. Uh, he was brokering out-of-conference matchups like you described, Purdue-Syracuse, uh, that would constantly be showcase games at a time, again, folks, hard as it is to fathom, where you were only getting one, maybe two games on TV in an entire week. Let me say again, you'd go a week <laughs> and see a game. So that was a, that was a big deal uh, uh, back then. And again, his association with the NCAA tournament in the Final Four and how it then grew – into CBS saying we can televise all of this, not just yeah. have some of the games, but televise all the games and eventually get it on platforms now over the last decade where all of the games are on their own individual cable network or on CBS proper on the on the network, where if you want to watch any of the NCAA tournament games, you don't have to worry about what region of the country you're in or yeah. do I just get it on my phone, the app, it's actually on a network. All of that groundwork laid, not just by Packer, but all the people involved, Enberg, McGuire, all the CBS broadcasters, all the executives. That groundwork, though, was laid 30, 40 years ago, right? Well, again, the point to be made here is think of the NCAA tournament as we know it today. And, and you know, much like a, um, uh, much like a pinball that would mm -hmm. flow through in a machine, it all funnels back to one guy, and that's Billy Packer. Well uh, summed up there on that. We can't overstate it at 82 uh, years of age. And again, he had not been as associated. I mean, if you're a younger fan, he had not been as associated with everything over the last 10 plus years. But let, let's just share with you that as much as you see Dick Vitale on the biggest games, Billy Packer was on virtually every one of the biggest every, games. 
Every, all of them in the yeah. 80s, the 90s, and into the early 2000s all the time. So it, it was a big deal from that standpoint. I love the insight of Mark Wise. Follow him on social media, by the way, MW Hoops, a great follow. Uh, works the SEC, works some other conferences. Can't can't wait to get a chance to mix it up with him in March, uh, especially with all of this. It's our time. He and I, he keeps returning my call, folks. He keeps returning my text <laughs> message. He and I have been doing this for the better part of about 20 Long years time. now. I, I, you know, I didn't realize that you and I could do this when you're only 55 and I'm only 47, but we'll stick to our story on that. Um, I, I, yes, I'm in the I'm in the offensive line somewhere. Yes, yes, yes always. <laughs> uh, it, when he's in the building, he's in range. Uh, Mark Wise. All right. Speaking of which, I, I got to talk to you coming off the Monday night amazing comeback by uh, by Texas Tech at home with Iowa State down 23. Right. With 12 and a half minutes to go, it's one thing to be behind 23 in the first half and you start chipping away immediately, but they right. were, they were behind 20 at halftime and they were still behind by 23 with 12 and a half minutes left An incredible, uh, uh comeback O'Banner and the other players that are involved. Uh, they, they did an amazing job defensively of rattling o Iowa state, getting steals, getting the crowd in the game. You mentioned, uh, there's been bad weather in Texas, freezing rain, bad weather in Texas. I know you got out of Houston at just the right time working an SEC game over the weekend because that bad weather kept the crowd away in Lubbock in wet in West Texas because of sleet, freezing rain, bad conditions on the roads. They only had about 5,000 people in their arena. Now, there, Mark, there right. are going to be 50,000 people, if not 100,000, that are going to claim someday they were there for the greatest <laughs> comeback in Red Raider history. Yeah. Down 23. Yeah. So primarily in this comeback, it was defense suffocating him. It wasn't great three-point shooting. It was defense. It was steals with a lot of time on the clock. Right. Take me through that. You've done it as a coach, as a broadcaster, and watched and watched it happen. How does – what's the anatomy? What are two or three things that are in the formula that Texas Tech took advantage of? Well, let's go back um, a couple of thoughts. One is, re remember, Iowa State played shorthanded on the road in the SEC Big 12 Challenge and lost at Missouri, also a pressing team. So this is not something new in terms of them trying to um, uh, handle pressure down the stretch. But if you're down 23 with 12 to go, your message to the team is, hey, we're going to make the game hectic, and let's see if we can win a segment meaning let's see if we can get this to 15. And at the under eight, you want to talk to your team about, okay, let's see if we can get it to under 10. And so you, what you try to do is win little segments that way. And man, did they win them in a big time way. And then you get down the stretch and, you know, when you get into a, a two possession game inside of three minutes, I mean, basically you've got, it's anybody's game. So I thought Iowa State um, won that segment um, obviously, and that kind of led them into, and like all teams, and especially teams that haven't won. Remember Texas Tech 0-8 in the league. Now, I get it. It's the Big 12, and Big 12 is the best conference in the country, no question about it, top to bottom. But it, once you get that desperate and you get a little success, guess what? It's contagious. And, man, they played that way down the stretch. Yeah, they beat LSU on the weekend, who's not very good. Uh, then they came roaring back again. Davion Harmon is the, is one of their top scorers. He didn't score in the first half, Mark, but he was undaunted. He scored 16 in the second half, helping the right. comeback. O'Banner finished with 24, a lot of that in the second half. Those guys, as somebody has always preached to me, one Mark Wise, your best players have to be what? Be, 
They have to be your best player. And, and they were. And they were for I for uh, Texas Tech on Iowa State. What a what a crushing loss for Iowa State, who seemed to make every shot, every three in the first half, building the 20-point lead. Uh, I'm going to play uh, uh, your song here. You love this. That's an amazing comeback. But we are now coming up on almost the 30th anniversary. It'll be the 29th anniversary. 29th anniversary of the Mardi Gras miracle which is Kentucky LSU, right. speaking right. of LSU, which is Walter McCarty, Tony Delk, and company down 31 points, 31, right. not 23, with 15 minutes to go, and came back and won the game in regulation. Now, again, Texas Tech won in overtime. They got the game to OT yeah. down. That that night is amazing for the three-point shooting. That was the three-point shot that night, Mark Wise. They made 12 of them in the second half to engineer sure. the comeback for Rick Patino's Wildcats. They still don't want to talk about that in Baton Rouge. The Mardi Gras <laughs> miracle was February of 94, down 31. Truly, just one more finish-up thought, truly that game showed this Monday night Texas Tech comeback. It is not over if you have significant time on the clock. Yeah, I always have said this. Uh, um, I, I think – one of the things that people write about way too much are blown leads. And, and when I say a blown lead, if you're, if you're up 10 with eight minutes to go, that's not a blown lead. I'm sorry. It just doesn't work that way. There are too many possessions left in the game. But one of the reasons why we're talking about the Iowa state game and the Texas tech comeback, one of the reasons why we're talking about uh, the LSU Kentucky game is because of the significance of the spread. So yeah. from that standpoint, when those things happen, guess what? I mean, are we always going to talk about, even though it doesn't happen all the time, are we always going to talk about Virginia and UMBC? Are we always going to talk about now Kentucky and St. Peter's? Yeah, it, it doesn't happen very often, but when it do, does, it lives on in college folklore. Yeah, in the LSU case, to your point about whether it's a collapse or not, that game, just going back one more time, Mardi Gras Miracle, you'll see it played up when LSU plays Kentucky or when the anniversaries come around. That game, LSU led Mark Wise by 16 at the half. They come out of the locker room on a 20-5 to run in the first yep. five minutes of the second half. They are now up 31 based on what they did in the second half, and then Kentucky stormed back. That's even more astounding for Rick Patino's team that year, and LSU fans still want to vomit to this day on talking about it. All right, let's well, I, it in. I yeah, go, go to ahead. I I go to LSU in a couple of weeks. I promise you, I'm not bringing that up. <laughs> not on your own. That's not making the air. That somebody else might bring it up, <laughs> but not you. Uh, I'm bringing it up here. All right, so into the SEC again for a Tuesday. You're working South Carolina and Mississippi State. Uh, on the SEC network, it is a full slate of games on Tuesday night that also includes Alabama and Vanderbilt. It includes Kentucky and Georgia. You mentioned for a lot of these schools, they played in the SEC Big uh, 12 Challenge. Alabama beaten horribly by Oklahoma. Kentucky beaten a bit surprisingly to me by Kansas at home. So give me a little bit on the on the Tuesday slate, just real quick. Well, I think the most important game is Texas A&M and Arkansas. Uh, in Fayetteville. I say that because I think Texas A&M is the first team out. Arkansas is an interesting resume because they played and had some great wins with Brazil in the lineup. He's out now for the year. Nick Smith, they they started the season without and, – and Nick Smith is he, – he's a top eight draft pick, no question about it. But he they started the year without him. 
Then they played a few games with him. They've been at they they've been without him um, since around Christmas. So they their resume is going to be evaluated, I think, almost from from the last couple of weeks forward. Um, they've got some things in terms of quad one wins, and 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 so right now they're safely in. But man, um, you know it, it's going to be important for them to kind of win some games down the stretch, uh, and it's going to start with Texas A and M and Texas A and M, who has a quad three loss, a quad four loss. It's interesting because we had Lenardi on the other night in our broadcast, and I asked this question. You and I have talked about this before. When do losses on a resume come into play? Because the committee asks the questions of every resume. Who'd you play? Who'd you beat? Where'd you beat them? I want to know, when do losses come into play? And Lenardi's answer to that is in photo finishes. In other words, it's between Texas A&M and Northwestern for the last spot. Well, who has the, because all these resumes are flawed in Mm -hmm. some way, shape, or form. So who has the best win? Who has the biggest war on their resume? So from a Texas A&M standpoint, they can't do anything about the quad three loss, the quad four loss, but they can keep adding to the resume. And boy, it would be a big time quad one win if they get one tonight in Fayetteville, but it'd be a tall challenge. Again, we released this on Tuesday. Mark's talking about the Tuesday games. The Wednesday game that is of intrigue is Tennessee at Florida. Tennessee off the big win over Texas. Right. Gators beaten by Kansas State on the weekend uh, on this past weekend. On this weekend, upcoming Saturday, Florida at Kentucky. Thank you, SEC schedule maker. Tennessee followed three days later by Kentucky uh, for the Florida Gators. Just some games yeah. to keep an eye on. Well, they've quick, got quick they've thought. got Alabama. They've got Alabama after that. So mm. Florida has at Kansas State, Tennessee, <laughs> Kentucky at Alabama. Who did they anger um, at the league office? Continue <laughs> on, my friend. Yes. Well, I, again, I, I don't know that Florida can score enough to beat Tennessee on Wednesday night. Again, I go to another game that's more important in terms of resume protecting, and that's Auburn. Auburn uh, playing Georgia in the rematch. Georgia beat Auburn the first time around in Athens. So uh, this is an Auburn team that it doesn't also have a lot of meat on its resume bone. This is not going to be a resume builder, but remember – Um, If you're on the bubble, if you're anywhere around the bubble, you are playing down the stretch, you're playing two kinds of games. You're playing a resume builder or a resume protector. And so for Auburn, this is a resume protector. Uh, They better win at home. And the important thing is they get Tennessee and Knoxville Saturday. That's a resume builder big time for that matchup. But you got to take care of business in the first game with Georgia midweek. Uh, in the SEC. Listen, I promised you uh, that I would not keep you long. You're always gracious with your time. Have a great call of South Carolina, Mississippi State. Where are we going to find you after that for later in the week for the audience hearing us here? Where do we find you next after Tuesday night? I actually come right back here to South Carolina and have Arkansas. I haven't had Arkansas all year, so I'm going to check that box. And the only other team in the SEC uh, that I haven't had to this point is LSU, and I get them a couple of times on the back nine. All right, how about that? Again, halfway point of conference play, and you're going to see a lot of competitive stuff, a lot of crazy stuff, like that Texas Tech comeback. Uh, this is what happens when teams in conference play are familiar with each other. Hey, Should be hey, wild. TJ, Anything else? Yes. One last thought. Did you think you would see Kentucky in the last four in 
first four out this time of the year with this team? No. But the interesting thing is with the wins they have had, and if the resume continues, they're going to slide, I believe, not only out of Dayton, but they might even slide now starting into a 12 seed, an 11 seed. They are healthier. They are better. But you're right. I mean, it, it, things on paper. But this this is another important thing, and Calipari was talking about that, the health of your team this time of year. You've always preached yep. this. Yep. If you are yep. healthier, you are a different team in getting players back, getting players to play together. They've got That's a rough. The... They've got a rough schedule. The back nine. Um, one of the games that I have in a couple of weeks is at K- Kentucky at Mississippi State. And what's odd about that matchup? What's missing in the Kentucky resume is quad one wins. They only have one. Now it's a super win because it's at Tennessee. That's right. But Mississippi State, who doesn't have SEC wins, going into tonight's game, they only have one win. But they've got three quad one wins. So do you think Mississippi State would go to Kentucky and say, hey, look, I'm, we're going to give you a quad one win if you'll give us a couple of league wins. <laughs> How about a little resume oh, trade, if you a will? A little resume trade off. Yes, and again, for Kentucky, after they play Ole Miss, they play Florida at home, primetime Saturday, then Arkansas. Then you mentioned the two road games at Georgia, the game you'll work at Mississippi State, then Tennessee. I know I'm, I'm, I'm shooting all these games out then Florida, then Auburn, then Vanderbilt, then at Arkansas. I mean, Kentucky has easily got a half dozen games that really matter, and if they win most of them, they'll get out of the first four. They'll be in comfortably if they win some of those, if that is the case. I love the insight. I love the analysis. Great stuff on college basketball coast-to-coast. Thank you, Mark Wise. We'll be watching you on ESPN and the coverage of the SEC, the SEC Network as well. It's always a treat for me to talk to you. It is our time of the year with the College Hoops. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, TJ. Well, as part of that comeback, uh, an amazing night for Texas Tech on Monday night. Rich Hollenberg and Chris Spatola were on the call on ESPN2's coverage of the Big 12. And look at this. How about making technology work with my man, Rich Hollenberg, who's my Tampa Bay brother from another mother. Uh, You're trying to get on an airplane and get out of Lubbock. And I said, do you have like four minutes, maybe three minutes? And and Hollenberg (laughs) said, yes, for you, before I get on the airplane to get out of Lubbock, I have three or four minutes. Thank you, first of all. Publicly, again, I've said this on social media and in another interview, great job you and Chris with rising to that moment with the call of the game so Rich thank you for doing this and I guess the first thing is you've had about 12 hours 16 hours to reflect have we figured out yet how Texas Tech did that last night brother now uh I think desperation is the word that Mark Adams used when we talked to him after the game TJ and and, uh I think there is a whole lot of truth to that this was a team that was 0-8 going into last night's game. And after halftime, I'll be completely honest with you, Chris and I looked at each other and we said, you know, the narrative this whole season in the Big 12 is there is no floor in the Big 12. There are no bad teams. But maybe we're wrong. Maybe Texas Tech is just not that good this year. And then the second half happens. And I think it just proves, A, that Texas Tech is a lot better than what they were in league play before last night but also that this league is far and away not only the best league in basketball, it is also the most exciting and most evenly matched league in all of basketball. It was an absolute blast calling that game, Uh, but no one was more shocked than I was at the outcome because I think Iowa State is for real 
as well. And they'll bounce back for this. But I think that this is the type of game that could set Texas Tech back in a positive trajectory. Yeah, maybe it could. All right, so take, I love this part. Take me through. They're getting a couple of steals. They are getting a couple of easy baskets. Uh, 21-point lead is now like 15. It's now 13. At what point in your head did you start to process, because you've been doing this for a while, they could come back and tie this thing up? How did that work into your delivery, setting up your partners, Chris Patola? At what point did you start to plan ahead they could come back and tie this game i I think to your point tj the lead was 23 and i I had said it in the broadcast it wasn't like a tale of two halves iowa state was dominating them for the first 30 minutes of this game and so when they cut the lead to your point to around 15 i turned to my my stats person and i said to her Just do a little research and find out what Texas Tech's largest comeback ever was. And she came back to me, and the largest comeback they ever had in all of their program's history was 17 points. Mm. And that was back in 1997. Mm. And so I threw that out there just to give a little instant perspective if, by some miracle, the Red Raiders could complete this comeback. And lo and behold, they did. That was about at the 10-minute mark of the second half and and we just watched them chip away and chip away and chip away and you know home court advantage means something in the big 12 especially and this league like i said earlier tj is just absolutely bananas it has the smallest margin of victory in all of conference play across the country i think coming into this week it was something like the average margin of victory was eight and a half points and More than half of the games in league play were decided by five points or less. And last night we had two games. Baylor and Texas was decided by five. And our game was the most exciting of all, decided by three in OT. The voice of Rich Hollenberg. Love his insight from ESPN and all their platforms and their coverage of college basketball in the Big 12. He and Chris Spatola, again, I'm publicly throwing the bouquets, did a phenomenal job of uh, of calling the comeback, the 23-point comeback, by Texas Tech Monday night in the Big 12. Rich with us for just another moment or two because he's got to get on an airplane and get out of Lubbock and get where he's going next. Uh, And again, Rich and I have been around each other, broadcasting friends, uh, et cetera, for the better part of 20-plus years, and I really appreciate him giving me uh, a couple of minutes. So many times in a comeback like that, I'm just focusing on this one more question. So many times in a comeback like that, you've expended so much energy to get back close, to get back tied, that when the game goes to overtime, you have nothing left. Texas Tech still had something left in the overtime, in the in the next five minutes, to be able to win the game. How much more remarkable does that make it, that they still had something to give with five minutes of extra session? I think a couple of things, TJ. I think it shows that Texas Tech uh, – First of all, they're one of the youngest teams in the league. Um, and last year, they were one of the oldest teams in the league. And and this year, a common theme in basketball is, you know, the older you are, the better you are. Uh, to deal with situations like that, I think last night we saw an example of youth being wasted on the young, as Mark Twain would say. Uh, they didn't know what they didn't know. And a lot of those young guys, freshmen like Lamar Washington, like Robert Jennings, like Elijah Fisher, all stepped up uh, because they didn't know any better. And, you know, when you have your starting point guard, also a freshman, in Pop Isaacs out with a bad ankle, 
You have your starting big man, seven footer Fardaz Amak out with a foot. Um, I think, you know, when desperation kicked in and Mark Adams said, I'm riding with you guys, it's time for you to go out and do something. Uh, I think they still had the legs and the energy to do that because not a lot of them play a lot of minutes this year. So all of that reserved energy came to fruition last night in those five minutes of overtime. They, a, a lot of those guys made key, key plays when they might have been only averaging about nine or ten minutes a game coming in. One of the great comebacks in college basketball in the last 20-plus years. That's not an exaggeration. Rich Hollenberg was on the call with Chris Spatola, and I'm sure you both were looking at each other like, is this really going to happen? And it did. It did uh, last night. Uh, listen, you've given me a bunch. Tell tell us uh, where you will be next on the weekend and where we catch you next as this knockdown, dragout Big 12 continues to play out. Where are we seeing you next, my friend? Well, next, TJ, hopefully we'll be back home in Tampa today because I'm going to the Bruce Springsteen show tomorrow Oh, got to have that. Got to have and that. Then, you got uh, tickets. You're ready to I'm, go. I'm, yeah. back, I'm, I'm back on the road. Uh, I will, will be in Ames, Iowa, one of my favorite stops in the Big 12 uh, for Kansas and Iowa State. That's a noon tip East time. That's an 11 a.m. tip mm. Central time, and that'll be on ESPN and Depending on what happens tonight in Lawrence, obviously, Kansas, Kansas State tonight, I would expect Kansas to win that game. Uh, this game is going to be for second place in the Big 12 with a long way to go still. How about that? And again, Kansas State has already beaten Kansas. This is the rematch game in Lawrence, so that'll be played out before we get to the weekend. And Rich is right back on the call of Kansas and Iowa State, in this case, in Ames. Good luck getting back to see the boss. Uh, the, the boss would also be the bride who just celebrated a birthday, I believe. Good luck seeing that boss, then the boss, Bruce Springsteen, and safe travels to get back to the Midwest from Florida for more Big 12 basketball. And Rich, thank you for hanging with me. You did this on short notice. That's the kind of guy he is. I appreciate that. And again, one more time, fantastic job with you and Chris. Keep up the great work on the coverage on ESPN and the Big 12. Thank you, Rich Hollenberg. Not for everyone, but just for you, DJ. Thanks, buddy. All right, another pleasure to welcome in another guy. Wait a minute. This is two weeks in a row. It must be our time of the year. It's college basketball coast to coast. I love the insight. A great historian of the college game, especially, is Matt Zimmick, one of my contemporaries. We were going to have Matt on anyway to say a couple of things about Billy Packer on this, prod on this uh, podcast, which we will get to in a moment or two. But as I welcome you back in, you gave us great knowledge on everything in the West, Pac-12, Mountain West, West Coast Conference last week. I'm not going to have you just be beholden to that whenever you come on. Uh, my man Zimmick and I were exchanging text messages last night on the great comeback by Texas Tech against Iowa State. So first of all, welcome. I know it is early morning time in Phoenix when I'm grabbing you. You said, I can't wait to come on. I said, can you do it now? Matt said, sure. Give me a little coffee. I'm doing it now. So good to have you. Uh, and as I just said to Rich Hollenberg on this podcast, it's been about 12 or 16 hours, really about 12 hours since that game finished up. Have we figured out how Texas Tech did that yet? Good gracious. Hello there. No, no, we haven't figured it out because Texas Tech had just been absolutely abysmal in the Big 12. It's the one Big 12 team that's absolutely guaranteed to not make the NCAA tournament. You know, the the Big 12 is likely to get eight teams in and Oklahoma State is not completely dead uh, as the ninth team. But Texas Tech, you know, just... <laughs> has been struggling to win a single Big 12 game all season, 
And this is what the this is when the Red Raiders win against a great defensive team. That's the other part of this that Iowa State is a lockdown defensive juggernaut under T.J. Otzelberger. I mean, Iowa State's brand is turning basketball into a root canal for opposing offenses. And so Texas Tech is the team that makes the big comeback against Iowa State. Like you can you can imagine Kansas doing this. You can imagine Kansas State. Kansas State's been scoring in the 80s for a lot of its games under Jerome Tang, who, you know, is a frontline contender for coach of the year. Not this Texas Tech team that's been a broken down bus and, you know, which managed to win a game against LSU only by stepping outside of the Big 12, where it's had a hard time winning a single game in the conference. It, it, you know, on so many levels, it's it's really unfathomable. As I just said to Rich Hollenberg, uh, you know, at what point when it becomes 21 or becomes 15 or it becomes 13 or 11, do you start to have it enter your mind? Uh, they could. There's a lot of time left on the clock. They can get this thing tied, if not maybe win it. And his answer, because you didn't hear it, and the audience just heard it here on the podcast, but you didn't hear it, was he actually turned when the lead was about 11 to the stats person that was there with him and said, find me the largest comeback in Texas Tech history. At, a, at about the 11-point deficit mark, he was beginning to think ahead and plan ahead. We got to start talking about what's their biggest comeback ever. So I just shoot this to you. We're sitting back watching. We've seen these kind of comebacks before. At what point did you have the inkling with like 10 to go, eight to go? There is still a ton of time left and they're getting turnovers and easy layups. The anatomy of a comeback. At what point did you start saying they could, they could tie this or win this? I mean, when it got down to six, you know, when it got down to two possessions, that, that was the point because when, when, if it's a nine, when it's a nine, 10 point lead, you're still thinking, okay, Iowa state's not going to give away more possessions. Iowa State's going to tighten up on defense. Iowa State's going to limit the bleeding because that's really what the Cyclones are good at doing. You know, the Cyclones don't have an elite offense and they can look clunky at times, um, but their defense is going to be there. Their defense is going to be the brick wall. The defense is going to be the fortress uh, that that saves everything and limits the damage. But when when Texas Tech got this down to two possessions, you're thinking, all right, now now it's really in range for Texas Tech. Uh, but it was it was uh, it was jaw dropping. No and question about it. It wasn't so much the three point shot. I mean, we were joking with Mark yeah. Wise that the Kentucky Mardi Gras miracle. My God, Matt, are we really talking about that? Was almost thirty years ago, twenty nine years ago, nineteen ninety four. That was twelve made three pointers in the second half by Kentucky. That's thirty six points on three pointers. It wasn't really three-pointers in the 23-point comeback. There was maybe one or two, but it was mainly steals, easy layups, foul shots, those kind of things, kind of old school on how they came back. And I know we're spending a lot of time on this, but you're, I mean, in a big-time conference like what the Big 12 is, you may not see a 23-point comeback in the final 12 minutes of a game for another decade. Let me say again, you may not see down 23 with 12 minutes to go and you not only come back to tie, but you win the game. It's that stunning what happened on a Monday night in Lubbock, Texas. I love Matt Zimmick's insight. Follow him at Matt Zimmick, Z-E-M-E-K, all one thing, Matt Zimmick on social media. He does a great job covering USC and the Pac-12 for Trojans Wire, the USA Today uh, website. 
uh, and everything going on with USC athletics, but in particular right now, Andy Enfield's basketball team and the Pac-12, et cetera. But great basketball historian. Let me transition it to Billy Packer. I know you've been conversing with me off the air. I've said a bunch on this. I don't need to elaborate anymore. I had Mark on talking about it, Mark Wise, earlier in this podcast. What do you want to say about his significance, Billy Packer, his importance? Give me your thoughts, Matt. Go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of people are doing tributes to Billy Packer. And and so so in order that we don't kind of just, you know, replicate what everyone else is saying, my contribution here is just to point out uh, a unique part of his story so that younger fans, younger uh, listeners to the College Basketball Coast to Coast podcast get this about Billy Packer because you're not going to hear this anywhere else. Like this has not been part of the standard obituaries and remembrances. And of course, I could give that but I want to give something special for, for everyone who's tuning in here to your fine program, TJ. And that is, hey, you're a Memphis guy. And in 1970, the Memphis State job was open. And Billy Packer, who was an assistant at Wake Forest, like in the, in the late 60s, he was an assistant at Wake Forest. So like he coach, he was initially pursuing a coaching career. And he wanted that Memphis State job in 1970. But what happened? Gene Bartow, who was the coach at Valparaiso, beat him out for that job. And Packer took it hard. Like those around Billy remember that he was very disappointed. That was, that was the job he was angling for. So what happens as a result of Gene Bartow beating out Billy Packer? Well, okay, we know that Billy Packer goes into broadcasting beginning in 1972 when J.D. Chesley, you know, and has him – uh, join the ACC, and you get Thacker and Packer, Billy Packer and the, the great Jim Thacker uh, make ACC broadcasting history. The ACC takes off. You have Dean Smith rising to iconic status. You have the ACC tournament becoming the crown jewel, the Cadillac uh, conference tournament in America, and you have everything that follows on the broadcasting side for Billy Packer with Dick Enberg, with Al McGuire going to CBS, the 34 straight Final Fours, just a, an amazing series of ripple effects in broadcasting history, enabling college basketball's popularity to take off like a rocket ship. But that's the broadcasting side. What about the coaching side? What about the development of the story of college basketball in terms of its progression of coaches, programs, championships, Final Fours, everything? So you have Gene Bartow leading Memphis State and your guy, Larry Finch, mm -hmm. you know, elite, elite player. He Before he coached Memphis State uh, to the Elite Eight in 1992 with Penny, you know, he was an elite player on that 73 Memphis team, uh, which beat Ernie DiGregorio and Providence in the national semifinal. You are playing in the my song. Keep going. Just, keep just going. All over it. All over it, baby. Beats Ernie DiGregorio and Providence uh, in the Checker Dome in St. Louis. Gets to the final. And that's when you have Bill Walton's arguably the greatest single college basketball game performance of all time. And he does it in the national freaking title game, mm. 21 of 22 from the field. Uh, but Gene Bartow leads little old Memphis State onto the big stage, brings that Memphis program into the bright lights. And, you know, if you don't have that 73 season with Finch as the elite player and Bartow as the coach, you probably don't get the Dana Kirk Final Four team in 1985, and you don't have Memphis basketball becoming what it eventually became. Uh, you don't get Calipari taking that job and viewing it as a destination spot. So 
everything about Memphis basketball begins with that 73 team and Gene Bartow. So if Billy Packer, what if Billy Packer had beaten out Bartow for the job? So like you don't eat, you don't get the rise of Gene Bartow. So much to say about Billy Packer, and I could talk about his analysis and his legacy right. and everything, but just this particular story. How many fans know about this? You're not going to get this anywhere else, but right here on TJ Reeves College Basketball Coast to Coast podcast. And, and that is phenomenal. That's a ten. Well, that's eleven or a twelve because I didn't know that story when you were telling me that story. Because again, that's around the time you were not born yet. I was born in 1970, and I know a lot of the history, but did not know Packers' possible involvement there. The one thing I was going to interject while you were rolling, you were like the boulder chasing Indiana Jones. You, I was not going to stop you. Uh, you just got to get out of the way. Uh, Larry Finch was the lead assistant with Gene Bartow, by the way, for those UAB teams. He cut his teeth as an assistant coach, first with Gene in Birmingham, with Gene Bartow, and then later with Dana Kirk at Memphis State and eventually replaced Dana Kirk when all the trouble started, the NCAA trouble started. And then, as you mentioned, Finch. Finch became the first, I, I believe this is still the case, I, I know he was the first, and it's probably still still um, uh, the only one, as a player, as an assistant, and as a coach to be in the Elite Eight of the NCAA tournament. A player, an assistant, and as a head coach and uh, it's it's amazing to go back to all of that and see how it connects uh, with Billy Packer and the job. And I was just going to say, Packer worked his first Final Four in 1975, John Wooden's final game, and Gene Bartos, the answer to the trivia question, leaves Memphis State to replace the legendary John Wooden. So that's uh, – and what – I mean, you and I are nostalgic. We know this, Matt Zimmick. Uh, to, to work John Wooden's final game in 75, to work Al McGuire's final game in 77, a national championship win for Marquette over North Carolina. To then have broadcasted uh, game after game, Michael Jordan winning shot for CBS, North Carolina Superdome defeating Georgetown. To uh, to work the Larry Bird Magic Johnson backing up, 79 epic title game. Uh, Keith Smart shot in the Superdome again for Indiana over Syracuse. Villanova, perfect game, upset of Georgetown, eighty-five. Billy Packer's on the call for all of those. All you can't, you can't, you it. can't overstate it, Matt Zimmick. You can't overstate no. his impact. Seventies, eighties, nineties, and the growth of the game. Give me one final comment to wrap it up on Packer, and then we're going to get out of here. Yeah, I mean, you can't write the history of college basketball without Billy Packer, and and yet, like, you know, what he did as a player, you know, getting Wake Forest to its only Final Four, like that's a small footnote. Like the the the, the influence he had on the sport is enormous. You shared me a story about Dick Gabriel, the, you know, the college yes. basketball writer in Kentucky, you know, noting how it was Billy Packer who made sure that Al McGuire joined Dick Enberg courtside as the greatest three-man announcing booth, not just in college basketball history, in sports history. Like, there has clearly never been a three-man announcing booth better than Enberg, McGuire, and Packer. And, of course, they're there for the Magic Bird game. So we have the marriage of the perfect broadcast team with the ultimate big game, just creating this massive groundswell. You know, I think the other thing to say about Packer in terms of the evolution and popularity of college basketball, you know, the NCAA tournament expands to 64 teams in 1985. That happens because of what happened previously in, in the run-up. And Packers, you know, moved to CBS with the, the Final Four going to CBS in 1982. And you have the, the Jordan game that Michael Jordan shot in the Superdome against Patrick Ewing and Georgetown. 
one of the great games of all time. Like, like you, you bring in the dome basketball for the final four, but Packer was part of so many of these evolutionary forces, creating the popularity, creating the excitement, like in a, before ESPN first take and all the sports debate shows existed, what was the first really great sports debate show on the air? It was Billy Packer and Al McGuire arguing over every call, over <laughs> every player, over who was the better coach in those four golden years at, at NBC from 78 through 81. That really was the, the initial great sports debate show. Like, like C, CBS had Jimmy the Greek on the NFL today. Yes. That was like the entry. That was the entry to sports betting. You know, Jimmy the Greek was a seminal figure in terms of popularizing sports betting for the American mainstream audience. And Billy Packer and Al McGuire, they popularized the sports debate. You did not get that anywhere else on American television before ESPN, you know, before First Take, before anything else, you know, before, and before you had like political debate shows such as Crossfire. Remember that? So, yes. Like Packer McGuire was the initial sports debate TV debate show. And people don't understand that, or at least, you know, it's important to realize before cable television became part of our lives, it was just the three networks in in 1978 espn you know starting in 1979 cnn i think started in either 79 or 80 for right. ted turner like so we need that's in part of just billy packer's influence on the business of broadcasting the business of sports television and entertainment that part of billy packer's legacy is you know is what also goes unremarked upon or at least underreported that can't be uh stressed enough and again, Dick Gabriel, who does a fantastic job in the Lexington, Kentucky market. He has been there for 40 years in and around Kentucky, Kentucky sports, the Kentucky Derby, all of that. He relayed the story, and I'm reading from it right here, that he says, I was working for NBC as a stats guy in 1977, Al McGuire's first year uh, of working on, on NBC after retiring, after winning the national title in the 77 Final Four. And he says they had Al back in the back in a small room with a green screen uh, separate from the broadcast table. And it was Billy Packer who went to the NBC executives and said, we got to have him here at the table with us. NBC would actually do this while we're going in the weeds a little bit on the on the TV and how they used to broadcast. NBC did this with Dick Enberg and with Kurt Gowdy as Gowdy was finishing as the play-by-play -play guy, but they wanted Enberg to be in on the broadcast. They would have Enberg sitting somewhere else and making a comment, coming into a, into a segment, going to a break. Enberg was kind of the host. He would occasionally throw things in. They actually did this in their NFL coverage at the end of 1978. Kurt Gowdy and Dick Inberg and John Brody are on the call of the Super Bowl. There's some names where Inberg again is not in the booth with them. He's sitting in a separate little area, kind of as like the host and giving. They had Al McGuire doing. Can you imagine they're playing a national television game, only one game on TV, and Al McGuire is in a room in front of a green screen instead of sitting at the broadcast table? That was Dick's story. And Billy Packer stood up, spoke up, and said, Al needs to be at the table with us. And as you just articulated, the rest is history on, on those guys being together. Uh, that was Summerall and Madden before Summerall and Madden. You think Joe Buck, yes. Troy Aikman. Yes. You think 
uh, any of these broadcasters and Dick Vitale or or now Nance and, and Packer as they were for so many years. I'm, I'm trying to go through some of the pairings, Tim McCarver and Joe Buck during, doing the World Series, uh, Mike Emmerich and Eddie Olchek doing the Stanley Cup Finals for the last 20 years. You cannot understand if you weren't around at that time, how big a deal it was to have Dick Inberg, Al McGuire, and Billy Packer doing a game, one game on a week, and they're doing that game. It was that big of a deal. And we're talking about 30, 40, 50 million people regularly watching a game because there's only three channels on the TV, PBS also, but three channels on the TV. It's remarkable. And because, and because, as you and I both know back then, that you know you didn't have the saturation coverage of yes. ESPN or e- every game being on any network. You know, ESPN, right. U, ESPN two, Fox, Fox Sports, Fox Sports one, Pac twelve network, Big Ten network, ACC network, SEC network. Yeah, you just had one <laughs> national game, so everyone <laughs> went there because that uh, you know yes. like people were hungry for it. It was a totally different television dynamic. No doubt. Listen, great stuff on Billy Packer. Uh, just real quick, Max Simic, before you're gone, I'm not restricting you just to the West. Give me a game or two as we release this on Tuesday. We've got the week in front of us. Give me a game or two that you're interested in as this week unfolds and maybe even into the weekend. Does something stand out here before we're gone? Well, two things. One, like the top of the Big 12, you have uh, you have Iowa State uh, playing Texas. Like mm-hmm. that, that that's going to be a, a big game, and you have uh, Kansas State and Kansas uh, playing a rematch. You know, in the first yes. game was eighty three eighty two in overtime, so you have all these battles uh, at the top of the Big Twelve. So that's going to be absolutely crazy. Uh, and then the other thing is the the Big Ten. Oh, and I said Texas Iowa State. It's actually Kansas Iowa Kansas, State. Kansas Iowa My State bad. because Rich Kansas Hollenberg, Iowa State on Saturday. Rich, how about Rich Hollenberg? Rich Hollenberg yeah. just told us he's trying to get out of Lubbock. He's trying to get back to Tampa Bay where I am because on Wednesday, as he just shared with the audience, he's got Bruce Springsteen tickets. He's going to go see the boss. And then if he can get back out, he's getting to Ames, Iowa for Iowa State, Kansas. You're correct. But the Big 12 is not down drag out at the top of the conference. You have a Texas-Kansas State rematch. That's what I want to say. So on Saturday, you have Kansas-Iowa State and Texas-Kansas State, the four best teams in the Big 12, uh, and both in rematches. So that's going to be absolutely amazing. There's going to be amazing basketball games in in America's toughest conference. And then the other thing is just every Big Ten game is a bubble game, basically, because Northwestern is second in the Big Ten. I don't know if anyone knows knows that. Northwestern (laughs) is in second place in the Big Ten. Uh, So, like, and it's really hard to differentiate teams two through 12, not just teams two through six, not just teams two through eight, teams two through 12, because 12th place Ohio State beat Northwestern on the road in North in Evanston by 16. So like, how do you differentiate teams two through 12 in the big 10? Basically every game is a bubble game. Cause like Northwestern second place in the big 10 likely to be in, but not a lock. So like you can legitimately say that for almost all of those uh, 11 teams in the middle of the big 10. So like you exclude Purdue, which is likely to be the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament. And you exclude Nebraska and Minnesota at the very bottom. Teams two through 12, an 11 team uh, pool uh, uh, of squads. Uh, almost every game's a bubble game. Now, like Indiana, Illinois, they're safely in. Uh, Michigan State's safely in as well. But like for most of those teams, Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, uh, when they're, they're playing Northwestern, like those are, those are, Wisconsin is a bubble team. 
those those are all bubble games. And so it, there, there are a few of those, like Northwestern Wisconsin's on the slate for Sunday. Uh, Ohio State Michigan's on the slate for Sunday. Just bubble game after bubble game after bubble game in the Big Ten. Yeah, Northwestern, as we release the podcast at Iowa on Tuesday night, you probably know that resource if you're listening to us a little later in the week. Uh, Indiana at Maryland. Indiana is coming on a Wednesday night game that's of interest is Penn State playing at Purdue. They played a close game earlier this year. Penn State would maybe need that um, as a resume builder uh, as well. So Big Ten, very interesting, very interesting on how it's going to play out. And there always seems to be a Big Ten team or two that gets into the Elite Eight, if not the Final Four. Minnesota Rutgers mid midweek also, very yeah. interesting. Mar- Maryland's another bubble team. Like Maryland's probably inside the field, but like Maryland's in that like for last four buys territory. You know, trying to avoid Dayton, but uh, it, it just you know they're they're like seven legitimate bubble teams in the Big Ten, and so. This is of huge interest to bracketologists and to, to other teams on the bubble because, you know, the right now the Big Ten is projected to get nine in. You know, like the Ohio State has played its way out for the moment, but Iowa, Ohio State can play its way back in sure if it can. gets on a five-game winning streak. So, like, the Big Ten getting nine versus the Big Ten getting 11 versus the Big Ten getting seven – like that is of enormous interest to the rest of the bubble. And it's really the centerpiece of the bubble conversation right now. This man is a centerpiece of our conversations to use your phrase, Matt Zimmick. Thank you. You've wrapped up college basketball coast to coast with some great stuff with me uh, here on this edition about the great comeback by Texas tech, a little Billy Packer. And then we set the table for later in the week. Thank you. And we encourage everybody to check out all of your work. Follow him on social media at Matt Zimek, Z-E-M-E-K. I love it. I love it. Great stuff on all subjects. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Just before we cut it off, uh, you should grab Billy Packer's book, Hoops, Confessions of a College Basketball Analyst. In that book, he tells a lot of the stories about just he and now McGuire jetting across the country, getting into arguments, you know, chasing down coaches at airports. And, and all of those things that he did to grow the game of college basketball. It, it's an amazing story. And there, there's really more to say. Maybe we'll we'll talk about it uh, in, at the Final Four or on Selection Sunday as well. There's, well there, 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 there's more to say about this story. No doubt about Billy Packer, Al McGuire, and how big a deal they were. Thank you, Matt Zimmick. Thank you to Mark Wise, uh, our SEC analyst. Love his insight. He's on the SEC Network and ESPN's coverage. And even Rich Hollenberg popping in after the great comeback with Iowa State. Uh, And Texas Tech, Texas Tech roaring back from 23 down with 12 minutes to go to win the game. It is truly never over if there's lots of time left on the clock. If you have a chance with possessions and the three-point shot, and it wasn't so much the three-point shot in that game, but the three-pointer is such an equalizer to be able to get back into a game if you're behind. It's amazing what Texas Tech did. And we've even set the table for some of the games this week. Again, follow, subscribe, et cetera. Uh, right here to College Basketball Coast to Coast, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, We love it. Thank you to all of our guests. I'm merely TJ Reeves. Enjoy the games this week. We'll be back soon with College Basketball Coast to Coast.